BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Coming up on The Science Revolution is Dr. Edwin C. May for an in-depth interview on how the federal government used ESP to spy on foreign governments. In brief, the U.S. military and intelligence communities funded a 20-year program to collect intelligence during the Cold War by using so-called psychics. Did it work? Was it successful? What happened and what can we learn from it? Dr. Edwin C. May also talks about the broader implications of ESP and psychics. Stay tuned. From 1975 until 1995, for 20 years, the U.S. federal government, our federal government, via the CIA, sponsored a program to collect intelligence, not just to do the experiments and things, but actually to spy on the Soviet Union using so-called psychics. It has nothing to do with the crazy nonsense you see online. This was a serious program. The unclassified name was Stargate. I tweeted a book that has the declassified work of this group. There are 89,000 pages in this document that was declassified by the CIA in 2003. It's been published in four volumes in this work. And the foreword for this was written by former Republican Senator from Maine and then Bill Clinton Defense Secretary William Cohen who knew about the program and expressed its value. You know, we're not having a theoretical conversation here about airy-fairy stuff, serious stuff. The Defense Intelligence Agency, the Central Intelligence Agency, the National Security Engage, 19 military and intelligence units in the federal government were involved in 504 separate intelligence missions using this program. And one of the people who helped put it together and run it for 20 years, Dr. Edwin C. May, is on the line with us, a nuclear physicist. He's the founder and director of the Laboratories for Fundamental Research. I wanted to reach out to Dr. May and say, hey, can we talk about this? I think this stuff is fascinating. It opens doors to conversations about the physical universe, about physics, about psychology and how we think and how psychology affects our understanding of reality itself and to the possibility that there are senses that we haven't yet discovered or even realms that we haven't discovered, much like back in the day, back 150 years ago, if you said to somebody, you know, someday somebody a thousand miles away from you will appear in your living room on a screen four feet wide and be able to have a conversation with you in real time. And, and, and they would have said, come on, you're crazy. You're crazy. That doesn't exist. You know, because what? Radio waves? What's that? So on the line with us is Dr. Edwin C. May. He is a PhD, founder, director of the Laboratories for Fundamental Research. LFR.org is the website. Dr. May, for 20 years, you worked with and for the federal government. Tell us about that program. Laid the groundwork beautifully, and I really appreciate it. It all started way back when, when a Soviet information scientist 
Ipala Mosevich Kogan, an information guy, wrote a paper in 1969, I believe, claiming telepathy is possible. And he gave an explanation of how it worked. That really terrified the U.S. intelligence community at the, at the moment. But in 1974, the CIA got very, very interested in this. If it were real, that's a big if, then they would be, it's obvious, if you could collect intelligence by just sitting in your living room and learning by some magical ESP way what's going on in Russia, that would be valuable. But they didn't believe that at first. So they initiated a program at what was then called Stanford Research Institute in Menlo Park, California. Colleagues Hal Putoff and Russell Targ started the program in 74. They had permission from the director of CIA at the time, a guy by the name of William Colby, to begin all this. And long story short, it appeared to be real, and they were really excited about it and used it throughout 20 years of that program which is known uh, popularly as the Stargate program, having nothing to do with that science fiction show. <laughs> this was an actual program that was funded with U.S. government funding that was overseen by the CIA that hired these colleagues of yours and ultimately hired you too to do this 20-year investigation in the possibility that we could spy on the Russians using ESP and you found that there was some evidence for it. How did it work? What were the protocols and what did you all learn from this? Well, one of the things we learned about it was that it was useful, and like other forms of humans gathering intelligence, you know, back in when they had spies on the ground sneaking around behind enemy lines in World War II, human gathering of intelligence called human is very unreliable. You know, did I count the number of tanks right, or did I miss 20 of them? That's kind of problem, right? And so mm. the ESP portion of this was as good as human spies on the ground, and as bad as that. That doesn't mean it was not useful. So the way it worked in a laboratory setting is I have a collection of photographs, let's say, sitting on my desk here in California, and you're up in Oregon, and I randomly choose one of those pictures with a random system, and I say, okay, hey, Tom, please tell me what's in your mind with regard to the picture I just chose. Now, I don't even know myself because it's just a number somewhere. And oddly enough, under laboratory detailed conditions, you were able to do that some of the time, way above chance. And that says, hey, something really interesting is going on, and it may inform us about how we can get information across space and time and what's going on in our brain when we are receiving that stuff. Now, you are a physicist. Do I have that right? Yes. Does this have to do with quantum entanglement, in your opinion? Oh, my favorite unhappy question, no. We don't think okay. that quantum entanglement has anything to do with the brain, and there's lots of scientific papers on that, why that is not the case, although it's a popular idea, and as a metaphor, it's pretty cool. But no evidence of it that quantum entanglement, quantum mechanics, of course, involves how all the atoms work and all that down at the micro level, and our brains, most of them, <laughs> are full of atoms and their neurons and so on. So it is a quantum mechanical thing we have between our ears, but not the entanglement part of it. Okay. And the entanglement being if you split a particle in two and one part goes flying off in one direction and the other particle goes off flying in the other direction, if you rotate the first particle, the second particle will instantaneously rotate identically, even though they might be separated by hundreds of billions of miles or trillions of miles, and they entangle at faster than the speed of light. Am I correctly describing quantum entanglement? Close. Close enough for, for government work, so to speak. <laughs> 
Uh, uh, The Chinese have the all-time record of this. They were able to show entanglement over a few hundred kilometers by bouncing beams of light up into a satellite and back down again. That's the current record where uh, entanglement works. And I want to tell you an idea about entanglement, and that has to do with quantum decoherence as a technical term, but I'll make it like this. Suppose you and I have children, both our kids in the park, and we're side by side, and the kids are swinging back and forth, and those two kids are correlated. When you push your kid forward, my kid moves forward, and if you push your kid backwards and back, and so on. But then I carefully cut the swing in half and take my swing and travel carefully to New York. And so you should know instantaneously that when your kid goes forward, my kid's going forward. Unknown to you, I took my kid out for a pizza. That's called environmental decoherence. Uh Aha. Okay. So we don't think that this mechanism that seems to be extrasensory perception is based on in quantum physics. What is it based in? Well, we're lazy. At least I'm lazy as a physicist. If I don't have to invent anything new, I'm not about to go ahead and do just that. So look at the normal sensory systems. If you're lying on your back on a nice cloudless evening and enjoying the stars above you, and all of a sudden you see a satellite go over, your attention is drawn to something that's moving. And that's true with all our sensory systems. If you're at a party and somebody walks in with too much cologne or perfume, you know it immediately. But then after a while, you get used to it. The technical term is habituate to it. So we said, okay, if all of our sensory systems act that way, ESP, sensory, must also act that way. And yes, we found a way of showing that some things, when they're changing, are more likely to be seen, recognized, than things that are not. For example, suppose you're standing, you know, 200,000 years ago on the edge of a savanna in Africa, and you glance over and you see the grass, and it's not moving, but you notice the leopard has changed. Yeah, I mean, this is wired into us. This is survival stuff. This is fascinating. Is it possible ESP is real? Dr. May, you described one experimental study where somebody looks at a picture and actually you weren't even looking at a picture. You were selecting a picture but not looking at it and somebody else far away was able to guess that with higher than random chance probability? Absolutely, that's correct. Does it make a difference whether the person looks at the picture or not? Well, we've looked at that actually scientifically as much as we possibly can, and no, it does not seem to matter whether somebody's looking at it or not. But the key feature is if I'm actually looking at it, I can't hold a conversation with you because for all kinds of nonverbal ways, I will tell you what the picture actually is. So that has to be what's called double-blind conditions, and we're fastidious about that. Did you try putting people in Faraday cages, basically a metal box or a mesh box through which no radio waves can penetrate? Yeah, we've even gone further than that. We've done experiments in an underwater submersible, not a military submarine, but a submarine nonetheless. You know, go go down 300 feet in water surrounded by it, which is a pretty good shield, and it still works. Have you found anything that can block it from working? No. Now, that raises a whole lot of other interesting questions from what time frame. When is that information available? And that's an open question in research, and we're all a little bit crazy about it. When the government stopped this project, what happened? Well, there was a lot of controversy, and I was asked by a senator to write a critique of why the government stopped it. And I wrote that in 1996. And it turns out it was completely wrong. 
In the years 2000, 2003, the CIA released 89,000 pages of our formerly classified data. And in there, we found a memo from Congress to the CIA saying, hey, our budgets have gone down, the Cold War is over, you need to slim down the various projects you are using, and if you don't do that, we're going to close down the CIA. Quite literally, they said that. So we were one of the programs that got axed. Was that incidental or intentional? Intentional. The CIA came back to us 43 times with separate intelligence missions. They were happy with us, but they had to kill it or Congress would be all over them. Not just in our program, lots of other ancillary programs hit the dust then. Are there other countries continuing to pursue this? Uh, it's an educated guess, but I don't have any first-hand information, I think. At least I hope so. We all could use this as an adjunct in our time of international terrorism. Dogs, their olfactory bulb, their smelling mechanism maps to the part of their brain that we use to see with, to the occipital cortex. Theory is that dogs can actually see smells. You know, when they're traveling around, they can map smells in ways that are unimaginable to us. They just found that dinosaurs and apparently some birds still have vestigial parts of this have a whole set of little tiny holes with sensors in their beaks or in the front of their mouths. And some birds still have this, apparently, the birds that eat clams along the seashore, that are so sensitive at detecting motion under the ground, again, something that we could never do, that they can just stick their nose right down into the ground and pull up a worm or a clam. We used to always think that there were five senses. Then some smart wag came along and said, well, what about the vestibular system, you know, the inner ear? It measures gravity. We all have a gravitometer in it, and it's why we can stand up straight. And so we all have a gravity sensory system, so that makes six. Are you suggesting that what is at work here is another sensory system that we're just not familiar with, we don't customarily use, or that in many people it has atrophied? Hey, Tom, would you like a job in my lab? That's exactly the right question. <laughs> the answer is yes. And actually, there are more sensory systems of the kind. Uh, we can do echolocation and some pretty bizarre things, detect magnetic fields of the normal variety in our brain. And so I'm proposing, and my colleagues do also, that you know we're dealing with yet again another sensory system. I've known for years that I'm extraordinarily good with directions. You can put me pretty much anywhere. I lived a summer, my friend Clark Stinson and I hauled a couple of teepees, a three-day hike up into the Chippewa National Forest in northern Michigan. We're literally in the middle of nowhere. And we spent the summer there doing what we thought was spiritual practice. But I could always find my way in and out of anywhere. I have an internal compass. And I know people like it. My father was like that. My wife, on the other hand, Nothing there, you know, doesn't, if you said which way is north, she'd have to look at the sky. And I didn't need to look at the sky. I can do them in the middle of the night. And we know now this is how birds migrate. This is how insects migrate. This is, you know, built into lots and lots of animals. And apparently some little fragment of it is still built into us. So what's the mechanism of this sensory system that you're suggesting? Don't know exactly. I mean, that's clearly a big issue. One of the other big issues that we have of people who can do this under laboratory conditions don't know when they can do it or when it's happening. Give an example here with complicated experiments and one of the so-called psychics is coming to the lab. They park in the parking lot and everything psychic that's going to happen to them happens at that point, not when they come into the laboratory and get wired for EEG or whatever things we're measuring. And that's extremely frustrating because these people don't know when they're psychic. 
Do now, they get example, the information before it's, quote, sent? Yes. Are we having time distortions here, too? Some, well, something like that, sure. I'll give you an example of how frustrating it can be. If we humans had access to all space and all time, all at once, and were cognitively aware of, I'll use a technical term, we'd all go bogus loony in a heartbeat. <laughs> I mean, we have to be right. able to slow down that filter, winnow out the bad stuff. We do that visually in, in auditory. You go to a restaurant having a nice conversation with somebody, and somebody drops a big tray of dishes. You learn to ignore that and continue the conversation. So one of the big pressing issues of our research right now is say, hey, what opens that door to this vast array of information over space and time? And more importantly, what closes it? We don't have much of a clue on either of those. And it's really quite frustrating to the researchers. Three times in the last, well, since COVID started, and this has happened to me many times throughout my life, but I mean, it seems to be happening with increasing frequency. I will suddenly think of somebody that I literally, I mean, in one case, it was somebody that I knew from childhood that I literally hadn't thought of since I was probably 12 years old, somebody I knew when I was eight or nine years old. Another one was a person that I was friends with for maybe six months back in the late 60s. And a third one was a person that I had met while traveling in the 80s, got to know for a few weeks in semi-social situations. And again, none of these three people had I even thought about once in probably 20 years. And they would just pop into my mind. And in all three cases, now that's not to say these are the only people who popped into my mind, but in all three cases, within 48 hours, those people reached out to me. I didn't reach out to them. Hey, I found your email on the internet. It's been a long time. How are you? Is this a common thing? Yes, very common Is this part of this? Yes. There are other reasons, too, but certainly ESP might be a component of that. I'm not going to say that every experience we humans have is always mediated by some extrasensory perception, but there are two possible ways that can happen. One is you had a telepathic view, got that information, or maybe you dreamt about it. ESP happens a lot in dreams. There was a big laboratory in Brooklyn for years about dream telepathy. But what may happen, you've got that through telepathic means, whatever that happens to be, or the people in your future contacting you and you had access to that future information. How's that? That's even weirder. This is really weird stuff. Funded for 20 years by the U.S. government. I want to find out why the government stopped funding it and what they had to say about that and what other things you learned. We're talking with Dr. Edwin C. May, a nuclear physicist, the founder and director of the Laboratories for Fundamental Research, IFR. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Dr. May, just to recap real quickly, when this program was ended in uh, 1995, why was it ended? 
It's a good question. And when I first started thinking about that seriously, Senator Cohen had asked me to write a piece complaining about what the CIA did. In the 1995 budget for the intelligence and military community, there was a piece in there that said that the CIA should take over the program from the Defense Intelligence Agency, which is where it resides, if they did a 20-year evaluation of the program and found it to be useful. Well, they said in their report, no, even though ESP is probably real, it was never, ever useful. And I thought, well, wait a minute, hold on, that's not true. The CIA, you know, uh, came at us with 43 separate missions to do spy and so on. So years later, it wasn't until last year when I was reading some of the released documents that appear in Volume 4 of that set, where the, the truth came out, that the Cold War was over, there was budget reduction in Congress for spying on, the, so on anybody because the Cold War was over, and then we have a memo which is published from the CIA, I mean, from Congress to the CIA, threatening them that if they don't slim down their large number of small programs, that they might even shut down the CIA from the get-go. And I was shocked to see that. But that's the main reason they shut it off. You know, I can imagine if I was a senator and I, was, I had oversight over the CIA's budget and I thought the CIA was doing crackpot research into ESP, saying, hey, quit wasting money. I get that. Yeah. And I can imagine maybe some senators saying, hey, if this stuff is true and it really works, this could be a dangerous Pandora's box that we don't want to open, although that kind of ignores the fact that other countries are doing the same kind of research. What do you think was the essential motivation for that threat to the CIA that ended this program? And do you have any knowledge that similar programs have been revived since then, or are we now, you know, so deeply into the Internet age that it's much easier to spy on people simply by intercepting their emails? I argue with my colleagues about that. I do not think, I hope I'm wrong here, that elements within our government are doing this anymore. And it turns out to be a sociological issue more than anything. I spent a decade with my colleagues after the program was formally closed to try to restart it, given the, given the era of, of terrorism. I've even tried to do joint forces with former adversaries in Russia, the ex-KGB guys, who I'm now quite friendly with. They wanted a joint program with our program to work the issues of counterterrorism. And that was turned hmm. down by us, by the U.S. If I correctly understood what you said earlier, which is that you've got one guy sitting in New York City. He is in 20 minutes when the guy in Los Angeles arrives at the laboratory and steps into the Faraday shield or whatever, you know, steps into the laboratory and starts trying to read the mind of the guy in New York. At that point, the guy in New York is going to pull a card out with a picture on it and it's got a number on the back and he's just going to see the number and the guy in Los Angeles is going to be able to describe the picture. That as that guy in Los Angeles is pulling into the parking lot of the building, and the guy in New York has not yet pulled the random card from the stack. The guy in Los Angeles already knows what the picture is going to be. If I'm accurately redescribing what I thought I heard you say in the last half hour, that calls into question our understanding of time as well as space. I mean, is this yeah. consistent or inconsistent with Albert Einstein's notions of time and space? Or am I completely mischaracterizing what you said? 
No, you did it exactly right. We conducted one really bizarre experiment. You know, the moon of Jupiter, the innermost moon of Jupiter goes around Jupiter every three hours. And unlike our moon, they have a, a lunar eclipse on Jupiter. If you were sitting there watching it, you would see the thing. And we had people here try to determine when that time where the, where the moon on Jupiter was half lit. That was what we were looking for. And our people could get that time to plus or minus 10 seconds of the actual time. Now, the question is, did they do that oh. before the, the light came back to Earth? It took 40 minutes to that do that. That is faster than the speed of light, isn't it, for a distance to Jupiter, or, or maybe not? I don't, I don't know how far away Jupiter well, is. Well, the question is, was light travels 186,000 Jupiter... miles a second, right? Yeah, it was 40 light minutes for the, take 40 minutes for the light to propagate here. So the question is, did they do oh. it when our telescopes here were measuring it, or did they do it while at Jupiter time? The answer is, I'm sorry to tell you, it was as if our, our remote viewing participants were sitting on Jupiter. They did it in the Jupiter time frame. So this blows up the idea that time and space are just linear continuums. Uh, well, it, if that's the case, and I'll, I'll tell you the same problem we had about the telepathy thing. Did the remote viewer or the participant in the experiment get the data from the actual moon as it went around Jupiter, or did that person look into their future when we told them how well they did from the telescope imagery? We have yet to hmm. figure out a way to separate those two things out. It's now, a giant um, pain, I'll tell you. John Quimby wrote a book back in the uh, mid-1800s that uh, Mary Baker Eddy uh, largely plagiarized and created this thing called Christian Science. In Christian Science, a religion for which actually I have a lot of respect, I've known a number of Christian scientists over, throughout my life, people ask for prayer from total strangers. You know, they ask for prayer from other Christian scientists, from Christian scientists, and people sit down and in a, a fairly methodical way pray for them, uh, typically for things like physical and mental health. You've got an entire religion here that's lasted 150 years that asserts that this is true. And I know that there was a Harvard study that suggested that it was true, that it did work. And then there was another study that sought to debunk that. Yeah, uh, there have actually been some very careful studies about intercessory prayer affecting somebody at a distance. Now, if I'm going to heal you in, right in front of you, that doesn't count because I can, you know, hands on you for healing. But no, no, if I'm in L.A. and you're in Portland, is there a way I can use prayer to affect your physical health? Well, there's a secondary aspect. The answer appears not to be the case. I don't believe that's the case from hard science. There's another explanation for the observable. You know, which makes sense. I mean, health is such a huge and complex system, whereas we're talking about a very, very delicate catching yeah. a fragment of a thought here, are we not? Yeah, and we ignored healing throughout the entire Stargate era because it is such a difficult issue. What constitutes getting better and what's not? How much is the individual right. responsible for their own health and so on? And so we said, hey, we got something else to worry about. Not, let's not do that. Dr. May, when you were working in and helping to run the Stargate program, it's unclassified name, did you all explore the idea of collective consciousness? I mean, the entire conversation we've had up to this point is a connection between two individuals. But what about the mass of humanity? Well, you know, that's an interesting question. A lot of interested in that collective consciousness and some very bright people have written about it extensively. We had such a, a narrowly defined mission to spy. 
We could not explore a lot of interesting things we'd love to, that being one of them. We did try some things having multiple remote viewers, multiple subjects, multiple psychics to try to get the same answer. And that, for reasons we don't currently understand, never worked. Why is it that the government believed that this is true and why I personally believe that we have a genuine phenomena? And I think I can describe that in terms of no statistics and what have you for our audience to get a grasp of how how really interesting this stuff is because it's real. My wife is very fond of Sufi Sam. He was a 60s guru guy. She's not fond of him, but he had an idea that reincarnation isn't a thing. What actually happens is, you know, when we die, we just kind of all scatter into the collective soup. And then the creator is like the great goulash server. He reaches into it with a ladle and pours it into a new body. And so we're all little bits of everybody else, this collective consciousness idea. Did you go anywhere near anything like that? No, except he used the magic word. My my mother was full-blooded Hungarian, so I'm partial to goulash. <laughs> okay. Yeah, but you know, it's just you know, it's just like you throw all the vegetables into the pot, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. Were you discouraged from going after collective consciousness stuff, or did you 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 just touched it? We chose and not to, to do it. Uh, I'll give you one example. I was doing. A, I had some money to do a MRI experiment in Edinburgh, Scotland. And I actually gave the money back because I did not know whose head to put in the scanner or when to put them in the scanner. It would be a huge waste of money. We reprogrammed it for some other tasking. But there was an example that makes it very difficult to do research in this uh, area to ask not only technical questions in the lab, but even broader, more interesting questions like, what's the nature of reality? How do we have access to all this stuff? How does that all work? very difficult to do quantitative experiments. However, the data is real. And did this give you a thought that you may have an answer to what is the nature of reality? Uh, yeah, I can get clobbered a lot with my friends who are listening to this interview because they will disagree with me. I've got some idea about well, it, yes. People always ask me, why do I think this is a genuine phenomenon? Why does the government think that? Sure, I could go off the geeky cliff and start quoting statistics and all that, and it would put your listening audience to sleep. A better question. Tom, let's suppose you were going to open up a restaurant in, in Portland, and you have the best chef in Oregon, and it's a small little place that only seats 19 people, and you have a great menu and a wine cellar, blah, blah, blah. On opening night, 19 people come and fill up your restaurant. And then for the next week or two, 17 of those original 19 customers are coming back. What would you conclude about the quality of your restaurant? Well, what? I mean, people think it's great. Yeah. Okay. Well, now, as you said earlier, we had 19 customers for spying. The usual suspects, the CIA, Defense Intelligence Agency, the Secret Service, the NSA, and so on. Of those 19 customers who came, 17 of them returned with new and fresh spying missions. They wouldn't do that if this weren't real. That's what convinces me, and it also convinced the government. But, Tom, I'd like to correct one thing, though. The CIA Mm -hmm. quit funding our program in 1975. The massive amount of funding we had was from the Defense Intelligence Agency and the Medical Research and Development Command of the United States Army. Okay. What does this tell us, or is it even reasonable to try to draw conclusions from this other than that, you know, hey, there's something here, we should be looking at this again, and is anybody doing that? 
I'm working now with a group of neuroscientists, young neuroscientists. I'm getting old. It's time for some young people to take over. And they are committed to understanding what is going on in the brain from someone who can do this under laboratory conditions compared to someone who can't do it at all under laboratory conditions. That will teach us something about the brain we currently don't understand. Also, how that information gets from India tomorrow to today here, that's something else that maybe we'll learn something about space and time. But those probably, it's going to be 20, 50 years from now. Your opinion, you know, given that you've conducted thousands of these experiments and, 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 and hundreds of spying missions on behalf of 19 different U.S. federal agencies, do you think that the people who are particularly good, that what separates people who are particularly good from this from people who are particularly bad at it, or like Louise and I with regard to directionality and presumably magnetism, because there, we know now that there are actually cells that have a lot of iron that can you know, react to the Earth's magnetic field, and the birds make use of that and whatnot. Do you think that it's that we all have the ability and some of us have like encouraged and built it? I mean, you know, when I was a kid, my mom got me into praying for other people. And I've, I literally, I, I think every day of my life since I was a teenager, I've tried to pray for somebody. Because I think there's something there. Is that like developing this sense? Or is it that some people just don't have it, that they might be lacking an organ or a type of cell or something? Well, as I said earlier, I'm lazy. If I don't have to invent something new, I won't. And if you look at all other human capacity, there are some people that can play a piano for Carnegie Hall and other people can only do chopsticks. You can train me forever to play tennis and I will never be able to play at Wimbledon. So the question is, and we've looked at it, about 1% of the population can exhibit this phenomena under laboratory conditions. And that sounds like a small amount, but my gosh, if you multiply that by the people on the earth, there are a lot of people who can do this. But not everybody can, because not everybody can run a four-minute mile. Not everybody can jump six feet in the high jump. So it's not a surprise that it's winnowed down. Have you heard of the concept called synesthesia? Yes, it's where you confuse senses. You taste sight. We think our best people are what are called synesthetes that have that ability in their heads. And you can look at the functional MRI pictures of their brain, and they're getting crosstalk among the various sensory parts in the brain. Okay, so I, when I was a teenager, I took LSD, and I experienced that. I experienced synesthesia. You know, it's just kind of your senses getting scrambled. Is this something that could be induced with a substance like LSD? There is a guy in, in the U.K. that's been examining that for a very long time. I joined you back in the 60s on a similar situation. <laughs> but mm-hmm. it turns out that those, you know, and shamans throughout history have said, well, uh, peyote and, and other magic mushrooms and so on. What that does is create a marvelous internal experience in your brain. I mean, it's really lovely sometimes and terrifying at others, but that's in your brain. It actually gets in the way of information coming from some external source by ESP to get into your brain. It becomes a noise, a discrimination problem. You know, somebody whispering to you in a crowded restaurant, you can't understand what they're talking about. Too much noise. That makes perfect sense. Because, I mean, Tim Leary back in the day speculated about this, that LSD might be the thing that proved psychic abilities. But you think that it actually interferes with the process. Actually, there's more than just think about it. A guy named David Luke at Greenwich College in England has done extensive work in various countries around the world. He can't do it here because the substances are controlled. And he found that it gets in the way. It gets in the way. Fascinating stuff. Thanks so much for dropping by and talking with us, Dr. May. Dr. Edwin C. May, 
founder and director of the Laboratories for Fundamental Research, LFR.org. It's been fascinating. Thanks so much for dropping by. Well, it's been my pleasure, Tom. Thank you very much. Mine too. That's all for this week's Science Revolution. You can find the video portions of the Science Revolution on YouTube and check out our Facebook page. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And MIDI can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.